0: section thirty of chapters on evolution by andrew wilson this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eleven the evidence from development concluded three the development of mollusks amphibians etc part two the early history of the worms themselves belonging to the annulose type forms a concluding phase in these investigations into the history of the molluscan race if we study the development of one of the true sea-worms such as Aranicola or nereus we shall find a striking reproduction of some features with which our molluscan researches have already made us familiar the young worm makes its first appearance as an active free-swimming barrel-shaped body provided with cilia disposed in various fashions in different groups of the class thus in some embryos there is a first band of cilia around the body in front of the mouth A second band exists at the opposite extremity, and tufts of these cilia may also be developed at the extreme front of the body. In other cases, numerous bands of cilia encircle the body at its middle portion only, whilst a third set of cases exists where a broad zone of cilia occupies the middle region with or without a tuft at the head extremity. Out of such larval forms, the young worms are gradually developed, the head and front segments appearing first in the order of growth certain of these sea-worms which like serpula live in tubes of lime or other matters which they fabricate from the minerals of the sea-water possess a development equally characteristic with that of their free-living neighbours in the larvae of these tube-dwelling worms the head is provided with cilia disposed chiefly in two rings one at either extremity of the body soon tentacles are developed from the head portion the body becomes segmented and the tentacle which under the name of the operculum is destined to form a stopper to the mouth of the tube may likewise be discerned at this stage with its segmented body the young tube-dwelling worm resembles the permanent condition of its free-living neighbor of the sand hence when we discover that the tube-dweller finally secretes a tube and lodging its body therein becomes a stationary form we conclude rationally enough that both kinds of worms have arisen from one common stock, and that the tube-dwellers represent the more modified race of the two groups, whilst they likewise may be regarded as degraded forms when compared with their free-living neighbors. We have thus had presented to view a series of developments extending from those of the mollusks through the lamp-shells, and finally ending with that of the worms themselves is there evidence at hand to show that something more than a theoretical conception of the connection between these apparently dissimilar forms is a warrantable thought the answer to such a question depends on the credence we place on what development teaches if the truth of the axiom that development repeats descent be not admitted it is worse than useless to invite comparison between the larva of a chitin and that of a worm unless the mind has been prepared to discover in development the shifting and progressive past history of a species, there can be no benefit of an intellectual kind in comparing the likeness of the young brachiopod with the early stages of the worm. But, conversely, when it is admitted that all development is meaningless unless some idea of its use, purport, or cause is afforded, and when in the study of the phases of an animal's growth we are led to see prospects of tracing its past evolution, the likenesses and analogies of development become forcibly plain and valuable. Primarily, it may be said that a very large part of the reasonableness of evolution depends on its rational interpretations of development. Without development and its lessons, evolution would be well-nigh unprovable. Conversely, without the idea of evolution, the development of animal or plant is a meaningless piece of natural transmogrification and change. Insofar as the life histories at which we have just glanced are concerned, the general conclusions to be drawn from their study lie on the surface of the subject. Beginning with the worms and their transformations, we find a type of larva presenting a rounded body with variously disposed cilia, which simply becomes segmented and with little further change becomes the worm from the worms to the lamp shells is an easy transition for in the development of the latter we find the clearest reproduction of the features of the young worm larva, in the body divided into its three segments and exhibiting its cilia and eye spots whilst as huxley remarks the resemblance to the worm larva is increased when we find the young lamp shell developing bundles of bristles such as the worm possesses on the middle joint of its body from such resemblances Huxley is more than justified in remarking that whilst the lamp-shells bear a likeness in development to the plant-like sea mats and their neighbors their development quote, no less strongly testifies to their close relations with the worms unquote. thus the evolution of a race of lower shell-fish from a worm stock is plainly enough taught by development and such a fact testifies directly enough to the possibilities of other molluscan developments having had a similar origin. Coming next in order to the molluscs themselves, we find two classes, the bivalves and the gastropods, in each of which certain primitive forms of development may be traced. The villager stage may be regarded as common to both groups and the common origin for both classes may reasonably enough be argued for and maintained on this ground alone, and apart from any plain agreement in structure. It is, however, in the lowest members of each group that we may expect to find the most marked likeness to the primitive type and rootstock from which these classes have been derived. Hence it is to chitin and dentallium that we turn for aid in solving the problem before us. The young tooth-shell is unmistakably a worm its barrel-shaped body, its circlets of cilia, its end tuft of these appendages are all characters which reproduce before us the embryo worm. Nor is the early history of chitin materially different from that of the tooth shell. The young chitin leaves the egg, as we have seen, with a ciliated girdle in the middle of its body and a long tuft of cilia on its head, whilst this embryo seems to proceed even further on the worm track when we find its body to become segmented or divided as in the worms, these divisions becoming the shell plates of the mature chitin. Thus chitin may be regarded without exaggeration as a worm form existing under a molluscan guise. And when we arrive at the higher gastropods with their veliger stage and trochosphere, we see produced before us simply a later modification of the worm stock the life history of a sea butterfly or pteropod in fact takes up the narrative where the development of chitin ends it chitin led us to the worm larva stage and thereafter branches off on its lower molluscan path but the pteropod may as we have seen begin life as the worm and proceeds not merely to develop its veliger stage but remains permanently therein flapping its way over the surface of the sea by means of the permanent velum in the form of the fins or wings. Last of all, a gastropod like Aeolus presents us with a multum in parvo of the whole process of gastropod and molluscan evolution. Here we take up the story at the stage where the pteropod history concluded. Aeolus and its neighbors, or Limnius, passing through the pteropod stage, each with its velum, develop onwards to become the higher and shelled gastropod, and represent the furthest evolution of the race. Thus, from the worms to the lamp-shells on the one hand, and to the chitons and tooth-shells on the other, from these latter in turn to the terrapod and thence to the bivalves and gasteropods, the track of development seems plainly marked. The whole story it tells is that of a shifting panorama of the modification of the animal form. Phase succeeding phase, and each new succession of forms obscuring or it may be intensifying the development of the preceding classes and groups but clearly marked or obscure understood fully or only suggested to the mind the whole process of development reveals to us the operation of a great law of evolution and progressive change manifested through those wondrous cycles and transformations which nature seems never weary of exhibiting to the earnest mind and seeking eye if, finally, one might be tempted to inquire into the origin of these ciliated worm larvae themselves, we may find that speculative natural history is not unprepared with a reply. We are reminded that, as the early stages of egg segmentation are not peculiar to the mollusks, so neither are the veliger stages the special belongings of that group of animals. The velum, or its representative ciliated girdles, appears before us equally in the development of the echinoderms or starfish group, of the worm, of the wheel animalcule or rotifer, and of the mollusk. The zoologist would further remind us that these ciliary bands often remain in adult animals and are represented by certain stable possessions, such as tentacles or feelers, gills, the arms of lamp-shells, and like structures. It is probable enough, says Professor Ray Lancaster, quote, That all the ciliated bands of invertebrate embryos, even of adult organisms, can be explained as derivatives of one primitive organ. If this thought be fully worked out, it contains a veritable philosopher's stone for the zoologist, inasmuch as it enables us to account for the forms and structures of animals on a rational basis. That is to say, the particular form and structure of an animal or class are due to the fashion in which the original ciliated bands of the larva and the embryo itself have been modified by the external and internal forces which now as of old operate on living things professor lancaster has suggestively worked out this idea of the derivation of all existing embryos from a type form to which he has given the name of architroque a form represented by deputy so to speak in certain worms and in the mat class as adult organisms Such a theory explains to us, on a basis of a reasonable nature, how different forms may arise from a similar root larva. And it may be added that should any objection be urged to such views on the ground that they are entirely hypothetical, one may retort that to all other explanations of the past of nature, whether theological or scientific, exactly similar opposition may be offered. Further, we must reflect that in any case, We have to choose between filling up from our observation of nature the gaps in our knowledge which a philosophical necessity entails, or allowing these gaps to yawn unsatisfactorily and permanently unfilled. The rational mind is not likely to hesitate in its choice of alternatives. And if, lastly, it be borne in mind that, so far from being merely shadowy theories, such ideas of the origin of animal forms are based on close observation of nature, often the work of many concentrated lifetimes, the logical standing of a theory which connects the facts of nature and by so connecting explains them needs no justification, as it fears no honest and unbiased criticism. Turning now to the vertebrate animals, we may find in the class of frogs and newts, amphibia, material for illustrating some of the most important phases in normal development and in altered life histories as well. The life history of a frog has already been alluded to in a previous chapter in connection with the evolution of lungs. It is needful, however, again briefly to refer to this life history as a starting point for the due understanding of other and allied classes of development. The frog begins its existence as a tadpole, breathing first by external and then by internal gills, and possessing a two-chambered heart resembling that of the fish. Sooner or later, the hind limbs begin to appear, then the forelimbs are developed, and the frog's lungs, likewise, begin to make their appearance. At this stage, the animal resembles its neighbors, the proteus and axolotl, which are tailed and which breathe throughout life by both gills and lungs. Later on, the gills disappear entirely. The tail becomes rudimentary, and the frog, leaving the water, becomes the terrestrial lung breather with which we are so familiar to repeat huxley's words in reference to the case for development as a guide to the history of the race if all living beings have come into existence by the gradual modification through a long series of generations of a primordial living matter the phenomena of embryonic development ought to be explicable as particular cases of the general law of hereditary transmission on this view a tadpole is first a fish and then a tailed amphibian provided with both gills and lungs before it becomes a frog because the frog was the last form in a series of modifications whereby some ancient fish became an urodeal or tailed amphibian and the urodeal amphibian became an aneurys or tailless amphibian in fact the development of the embryo is a recapitulation of the ancestral history of the species that there are ancient fishes still represented by living species which may have served as the starting point of the frog race, is matter of zoological fact. Quote, various features in the anatomy of the tadpole, says the late professor F.M. Balfour, point to its being a repetition of a primitive vertebrate type. The nearest living representative of this type appears to be the lamprey. Unquote. This author also points out how close are the resemblances between the mouths of the tadpole and lamprey, And a still more remarkable fact consists in the observation that many of the peculiarities of the skull of the tadpole are reproduced in the skull of the lamprey. Whilst, as Professor Balfour remarks, these resemblances must be due to deeper causes than mere adaptation to similar habits, there are yet, quote, no grounds for supposing that the lamprey itself is closely related to an ancestral form of the amphibia, unquote the more feasible opinion is that which would assume that both lamprey and tadpole are descended from a common and still more primitive stock it would seem indeed that the ganoid fishes of which the sturgeon bony pike and the fossil forms of the old red sandstone are examples together with the allied lepidosiren and ceratotus possess an allied origin from the common root of lamprey and tadpole the facts already detailed in chapter six concerning the development of lungs in these latter fishes would of themselves seem to support this idea of their origin just as along one line of descent the gilled tadpole race has developed its lungs as the frogs of today so starting from the same ancestry but developing along a different pathway the lepidosirens and their neighbors as if animated by like air-breathing tendencies have developed lungs likewise Similar tendencies towards a certain goal in development, in other words, have produced like results in the evolution of two branches of the vertebrate tree. An interesting fact may be added to these considerations namely, that one tadpole form, that of Dactylothra, presents the closest resemblance to certain fossil fishes of the old red sandstone period. These fishes belong to the ganoid type already mentioned and the dactylethra tadpole, whilst resembling the ganoid stock, also shows affinities to the shark and dogfish type. The latter fishes are nearly allied to the ganoids, and both appear in the geological record at once as the oldest of fossil fishes and vertebrates. This curious tadpole probably represents a period in the evolution of the frog race, after that race had been specialized from the lamprey stage, and had already advanced somewhat on its amphibian pathway it therefore requires no stretch of the imagination but the exercise of sober reason to note firstly that as all the amphibian class frogs toads newts and their less familiar neighbors tailed and tailless together begin life as tadpoles and secondly that as they end some like the frogs tailless and gillless; others like the proteus or axolotl possessing both gills lungs and tails the assumption remains clear that these animals have sprung from a fish ancestry. It is further matter of fact that their development has followed two pathways. In the one case, the frogs and toads have passed towards a pure air-breathing existence and have emerged from their development as land animals, pure and simple. In the other case, the lower stock of the class, represented by the proteus and axolotl, etc., have retained many of their lower characters, most notably gills and tail and have accordingly taken a lower and less modified position than the frogs and toads the familiar tailed newts which though living in water and beginning life as gill-bearing tadpoles breathe as adults by lungs alone represent a middle term in the series in that they still retain the larval tail of early life whilst the ordinary course of amphibian development runs as has just been described there are certain exceptions of extreme interest from the evolutionists point of view Firstly, there are certain cases of curious development amongst frogs themselves, which deserve a passing notice. There are peculiarities, for instance, in the carrying of the eggs, which are eloquent enough in their testimony to the singular modification of structure and habits which may accompany alteration of surroundings. Thus the tadpole form of pseudus paradoxa attains a very much larger bulk than the adult. Such a circumstance points either to some nutritive condition affecting the larva, or shows that the larva reproduces some ancestral form which was larger than the living frog. The female of Nototrema marsupiatum, a tree frog inhabiting America, carries her eggs in a large pouch which underlies the skin of the back and opens behind. The larvae of Nototrema are said to want external gills, if correct, this circumstance points to high modification in the development of this frog. A like feature to the method of egg carrying found in Nototrema is seen in Opisthodelphis, another American frog, and Hylidus, likewise an American tree frog, lays its eggs in the axils of leaves, that is, in the angle between leaf stalk and stem, the water needful for their development being found in the chance drops resting in that situation. The male of Elitis obstetricians of Europe winds the long chain of eggs laid by the female round his thighs, so that he seems to possess trunk hose and puffed breeches, as Mr. St. Mivart remarks. Dropping in due course into the water, the young burst forth from the egg coverings and swim away, leaving their father frog once more unencumbered and free. Another frog, Rhinoderma darwiniae, a denizen of Chile, exhibits another curious modification of a different kind rhinoderma like the edible frog of europe possesses certain vocal sacs or bags placed within the mouth whereby the resonance of the mouth and the loudness of the croak are increased it is interesting to find however that rhinoderma has come to use its vocal sacs as nests the newly laid eggs being thus received into the male parents pouches and the young remaining therein till they attain a considerable growth we certainly know of male fishes in the seahorse genus, Hippocampus, which carry the young in a pouch. And another male fish, Arius physis, like the rhinoderma, carries the eggs in his mouth and therein hatches them. In rhinoderma, the vocal sacs are greatly enlarged, and in fact extend onto the flanks and belly of the animal. From five to fifteen tadpoles were found by espada in each sac, the smallest being at the bottom the largest was about half an inch long and had well-developed legs neither the old nor the young tadpoles had any traces of gills and from their full development the conclusion that the young are in some way nourished in these sacs seems by no means far-fetched the rhinoderma presents us therefore with a case in which the organization of the male has become curiously and permanently altered to a decidedly new way of life so much so, indeed, that the skeleton has become modified from the pressure of the curious egg sacs of the mouth. More curious still, on account of the very singular modification which must have produced the feature in question, is the female Pippa Americana, or Surinam toad, the skin of whose back becomes soft at the breeding season. The eggs are pressed by the male into this skin, which grows over them and encloses each in a kind of cell. Very curious it is to find that in the cells of the maternal back, not only the tadpole stage, but the whole metamorphosis of this toad is passed. The young toads develop a long tail within the egg, this appendage being absorbed before they are hatched, whilst the useless gills disappear at a very early period in larval existence. Over 120 cells have been counted in the back of this toad, and from these cells the young emerge as miniature facsimiles of the parent. Another noteworthy case of altered development is that of the Hylotus martinisinus, which passes through the whole of its metamorphosis within the egg, and emerges, as do the young of the Surinam toad, a perfect frog, which otherwise would require to pass several weeks in water to complete its development. End of section thirty. Chapter eleven The Evidence from Development Concluded three the development of mollusks, amphibians, etc. Part 2